according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're probably already at Isaiah 66. If not, you may turn there. This is our 66th week in the book of Isaiah, and by the grace of God, we've covered one chapter per week, and we're ready now for week 66. The plan is to continue right along. A flip of the page takes us to Jeremiah, and we've got 52 weeks in front of us for Jeremiah. And I believe the uh, necessity of this is the conviction I came to some 66 weeks ago plus uh, in viewing our nation and where we're headed and the recognition that the doctrine contained within Isaiah and within Jeremiah may become very useful to our congregation and to believers around this country as far as keeping our eyes on the Lord and remaining faithful, even while Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies and our nation falls all around us. So uh, in any event, we've now completed, or after today, we will have completed the first half of this tandem of the Isaiah-Jeremiah series, and uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord will do moving on into uh, the weeping prophet. By the way, don't be uh, uh, distracted, don't be confused, don't, be, uh, don't get the, right I- the wrong idea. You know, just because Lamentations is called the Lamentations of Jeremiah, that does not mean that the book of Jeremiah itself is very happy. All right? uh, it, is, it is also full of lamentation and sorrow and delivering faithfully, delivering a message that his nation did not want to hear in, uh, in a lot of different ways. So starting next week, we'll get our introduction there. For today, though, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. We have a personal description of the hand of God, the son of God who sits at his right hand, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll develop that for you here in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time in his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness. I thank you, Father, for the peace like a river that uh, your word describes for us, this chapter describes for us, the hymns that we sing, the, the uh, peace that we experience. Because, Father, your Holy Spirit has been sent to every believer priest of this stewardship, and we rejoice in the peace that we have with you through faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. I thank you for his message. The whole Bible can be taught in Isaiah. We've seen so much through these chapters. We've seen the virgin conceive and bear a son. We've seen the son die on the cross. We've seen a coming kingdom. And Father, in all these things, I just rejoice that you are equipping us to tell the very same story Isaiah told. You're you're calling us, Father, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. And I pray that we would be equipped, that we would be motivated, and that we would be delighted to uh, to be your witnesses. And I just thank you for this, this powerful book. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, chapter 66 begins with the unified work of the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ said, I and the Father are one. And all too often, in many places throughout the Old Testament, we see that the unified work of the Father and the Son. The role of Yahweh, which in sometimes we can't be sure, is, is the Yahweh reference a reference to God the Father, or is it a reference to God the Son, or is it a reference to both? Is it the Father and the Son that are working together in their unity, in their tandem, as they are so frequent to, uh, to do? And that's what we see here in, uh, in these verses. Heaven and earth, throne and footstool imagery is powerful. It was understood by David. David employed it. Uh, He employed it when he was uh, attempting to build the temple that God did not allow him to build. And even when he did not comprehend everything that the Davidic covenant promised to the son of David, he still rejoiced in these principles and in these concepts. You and I, of course, know a whole lot more than David ever did. We've got a perspective to to see things that David was not equipped to see. We We have the blessing of the church age whereby we can look back in hindsight and we can be informed by the revealed truth of the New Testament. 
David was simply looking forward without a New Testament, without much of an, of an Old Testament for that matter. He had Torah, he had law, but he himself was writing most of the Psalms and all the prophets that came after him, he clearly had no uh, advantage of. Uh, I would just spend a few minutes this morning in First Chronicles chapter 28, um, a concept that we spoke about last hour. We talked about obstacles and, and reasons why we ought to rejoice when God uh, does not allow certain things to happen, that God knows better than we do, and he hinders certain things in his will and in his plan. All right? But when you turn to First Chronicles 28 and you see, let me get there, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles 28, this is uh, David wanting to build a temple, and God told him no. All right? And David responded with the perfect humility that each one of us needs to replicate or imitate in the sense that David did not just throw a temper tantrum, stomp his feet, fold his arms, and get mad at God. All right? David wanted to do something for God, and we often find ourselves in those conditions. And uh, God said no, and David said thank you. He worshipped because he was not allowed to build the temple. His son Solomon would be the one to build the temple. And so First Chronicles 28 David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. And King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and for the footstool of our God. This is the language we have in Isaiah 66. So I made the preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, And among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And so David begins to embrace the purpose of God and why Solomon was set apart. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as it is done now. Tragically, the example of Solomon, though, was not a good example. He turned to uh, idolatry at the end of his life. And uh, God, in his faithfulness, fulfilled these promises, not through the literal son Solomon, but through the greater son, that is, the Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, has the fulfillment of all these covenant promises. Verse 8 then says, So now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. Then we'll have to stop here. But when we move on to verses 9 and following, we have the admonishment of David to his son. The admonishment of a father to his son as David is on the verge of dying and his son is uh, about to become the king. In any event, this is the imagery that we have as David hands off the kingdom to Solomon. And as Solomon is the one who has promised to build the temple. And it is in that context that we have the language of heaven and earth, the language of the footstool. The very same imagery that Solomon, that, that Isaiah makes use of here in Isaiah 66 with the uh, agreement that how can man possibly build a house to contain God? That God himself is the creator of everything. That God is the one that accomplishes things for our benefit and not the other way around. And so we begin the, uh, the uh, chapter this way. He says, For my hand made all these things. And you can view this as a metaphor, of course. God is spirit. He doesn't have a literal hand. But he does have an agent who sits at his right hand. In fact, I don't mind capitalizing the H there and and viewing this as a personal reference to God the Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. What does John 1 say? Through him all things came into being, and apart from him nothing has come into being of all the things that have come into being 
And to this one I will look. To which one? To his hand, to his right hand, to the son of his good pleasure. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God moves on behalf of his son in the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and in fulfillment of the promises to David and in the fulfillment of every promise and the fulfillment of his promise to you and to me. Why do you and I have eternal life? Because God is faithful in the promises to his son. And we learn to be uh, very thankful for these things. The hand of the Lord is the faithful and humble son of God, the one who created all things and deserves everything. Remember, all things are created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the celebrity of the universe, the one to whom God has oriented his eternal plan from Alpha to Omega. The hand of the Lord is the faithful and humble Son of God. Now here it's singular. Later on, we're going to, in the chapter, we get to the plural. There are plural sons that are humble. There are plural sons that are contrite of spirit. Plural sons that tremble at the word of God. And those are the, the Jewish people that are made repentant in the tribulation. This is the kingdom of Israel that is prepared to receive their king. But the plural sons will never be made uh, acceptable if the single son is not. And we saw that last week as well when we saw the contrast between the, the one and only chosen one and then the plural chosen ones, the, the nation of Israel that is chosen uh, to be the covenant nation upon this earth. In any event, take a look at Isaiah 66 two. Look at the hand of God who is the one that brings everything into existence of all things that have been brought into existence. And then compare it to John 1.3 and see how they correlate, see how they relate. That it's Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And this is the glory of the Father and the Son in the execution of the Father's plan. Different applications there, all right? Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. And if you want more on this, by the way, we're we're not going to spend a lot of more time on it here this hour, but... Wednesday morning, we're in the midst right now of Proverbs chapter 8. And in the midst of Proverbs chapter 8, we see the begetting of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we see the nature of God the Father who begets Jesus Christ in his humanity. And the uh, poem that wisdom composes there in Proverbs chapter 8 is uh, significant as we connect it again here with John chapter 1, Isaiah 66 and other passages. How about Colossians 1? The description of Jesus Christ, again, as the heir of all things, the creator of all things, and the firstborn of all creation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Hopefully these are very familiar passages to you. I know I'm going quickly. Um, But understand, if you are a believer, this has already happened to you. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness, and you have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In Colossians 1.13, that's a reality for you and for me, for every one of us that has placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We have a new residence in Christ, in that uh, beloved kingdom of light, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Continuing on then, verse 15, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation And like I say, Wednesday morning we'll deal with this in more detail because we have the birthing of of the humanity of Jesus Christ before anything else in uh, in the creative ages there. Then it goes on to say, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, notice, and for him. It's about him. It's not about us. Why am I here? Why am I saved? Why are any of these things happening? It is for the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And in so many ways, that verse ought to help us to relax. That verse ought to help us to realize that, you know, we're not here to save the planet or save the whales or save, you know, any of these things. All right? Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer. He is the one that upholds all things by the word of His power. It is in Him that all things hold together. You know, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ binding the very fabric of this universe together, everything would explode. And it's waiting to do so at any moment. 
We understand that, that all this heaven and earth are going to pass away in, in extreme heat. And the only reason why it hasn't is because Jesus Christ has withheld that word in obedience to God the Father. So what an introduction. <laughs> you know, you have 65 chapters of some of the deepest doctrine any Old Testament believer was ever given. The whole panorama of things. And then he, uh, he starts the, the conclusion in this way. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And that God himself is going to execute his good pleasure on behalf of the Jewish people in bringing in the coming kingdom, in, in bringing about world peace. Jesus can visualize world peace and he doesn't need the bumper sticker on his car to, uh, to visualize world peace. But, it'd be kind of nice if the chapter ended after just two verses. But, <laughs> he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man he who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. Four divisions of hypocrisy right here. They have an outer show, but their heart is as, as ugly as you can imagine. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Not just a sin issue, but abominations to the very heart of what they're doing. Understand, hypocritical, abominable Israel <laughs> will be recompensed with wrath, but a remnant of hated brethren are the ones that will be saved. God is going to bring a remnant of hated brethren through the tribulation. All right? And if you say you don't want to be hated, well, sorry, it goes with the territory. Uh, if you name the name of Christ, you will be persecuted. If our Savior was hated, why do we think we would not be hated? And this is true that for you and I in the church age today, it will be doubly true for the nation of Israel in the Great Tribulation. Satan's wrath will be magnified all the more because he knows he has only a short time remaining in which to thwart the plan of God. Hypocritical, abominable Israel. They are going to be recompensed. We talked about payback. We discussed the natures of, of recompense previously to, to uh, this chapter. They're going to be recompensed with wrath. That's why the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is God's wrath upon Israel and why the church has no part of it. But a remnant of hated brethren will be saved. He will bring a remnant through. And those who endure to the end will be saved. A couple of quick items in this. I don't want to spend a lot of it. Just because breaking dog's necks is not a fun thing to preach on. But the... Uh, the hypocrisy involved, the folks that think they can make this great religious show. They're hypocrites. And in a lot of ways, this is how the whole book started. If you recall, way back in Isaiah chapter 1, he was denouncing hypocrites. He even called them names. He called them Sodom. He called them Gomorrah. And he said, just quit your sacrifices. They stink. I'm tired of smelling them. All right. And in Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 15, we had those issues there. In fact, this is a theme that runs all through the Scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, age of Israel, church age, doesn't matter. God is, is, is just absolutely disgusted by hypocrites in, in, uh, in every application. The, uh, well, we'll grab a couple of these. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. The, uh, back in chapter 1, do you recall the name calling that happened there? When he said, now hear this. And he's talking to Jerusalem but he calls them Sodom and he calls them Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now that, that's designed as an attention getter. Those names are significant. And he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? He says, the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Well, what's wrong with those? He commanded them to bring the sacrifices. Yeah, but not with the hypocritical heart that they're bringing them in they don't mean it they're just putting on an external show he says when you come to appear before me who requires of you this trampling of my courts bring your worthless offerings no longer incense is an abomination to me new moon and sabbath the calling of assemblies i cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly see that's the issue they're showing up for church but they're carnal he says i hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Any parent that's ever told their child, they've had it up to here, uh, that you can understand this verse. All right? Then he says, I'm just sick of it. 
I'm sick and tired. They stink. They're supposed to be sweet-smelling savers, and they're just a big stink in my nostrils. And so he says, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. See, at that point, your only option is to confess. All you can do is confess your sins and be restored to fellowship. You have no prayer life until you're in fellowship again. So long as you don't confess and you stay carnal, there is no, the, hop, the hypocrisy will just continue and get worse and worse and worse and worse. All right, well, this theme does continue. Um, won't spend a ton of time on any of these, only because um, the format and the limited time we have this morning. Proverbs 15.8. Good thing about Proverbs is they pretty much preach themselves. Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. There's the contrast. What's the difference? It's the attitude. The wicked versus the upright. You know, Cain's vegetables versus Abel's uh, uh, flock. It was the faith of Abel that made that a better sacrifice. It was There was no faith in, in Cain's uh, religion, the great vegetable religion that he started there. Proverbs 21:27. That's too easy to go there. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-seven: The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? What's he doing in church anyway? What's the point of trying to put on a show, trying to act like you're good or you're worth something? You proving something to God? Are you proving something to yourself? Or what are you doing? You know that whole crowd that says "Lord, Lord" on Judgment Day. They got a long laundry list of everything they thought they were doing for Him. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's the issue of what we're dealing with. Amos. How often do we get to Amos? Not often at all. And I almost left it out, but it's too good to leave out. Amos chapter 5. 21 to 27. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's the issue. It's interesting too. He says in verse 25, Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? This is hundreds of years after the Exodus. And look what we find out. You also carried along Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. You know, there's not a clue of that in, in Moses' writings, that they were carrying idols with them when they came out of Egypt, and they were secretly keeping them stashed throughout 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. Well, God was way ahead of them. I mean, did he know what was going on? Of course he knew what was going on. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. That's the message of uh, Amos. Jesus preached on this too. We won't turn there, but you're familiar with Matthew chapter 6, and he denounced the hypocrisy in his day, and he said, woe to those, and you know, when you give, don't sound a trumpet and show off all the giving you're doing. When you pray, don't blow a trumpet and show off what a great prayer person you are. Or or, uh, when you're fasting, don't be all gloomy and showing how holy you are by how pathetic you can make yourself look. He said, if you're fasting, then you and God ought to be the only ones that know you're fasting. And no one else should look at you and have any kind of clue that you've got some fasting going on between you and the Lord. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. And that's our reference there in Matthew 6 in, uh, in those passages. All right, now, back to Isaiah. Peace like a river. What do they have to look forward to? You know, and... They need to turn to God in faith. They need to accept what He's doing. All right. Well, the hypocrites are going to be judged. God's wrath will come upon the hypocrites. Likewise, they're going to be hated. Hatred should be expected for those who love the Lord. As it says in verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. That's the same trembling we had in verse 2, but now it's a plurality. Now there are multiple sons that are trembling. And they're trembling at the word of the Lord, just like Jesus Christ trembled at the word of the Lord. 
They're following after the example of Jesus Christ. These are the repentant Jews in the tribulation that are, that are uh, obedient to, uh, to the Scriptures. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake. Remember, Jesus was hated by his brethren. Joseph was hated by his brethren. The tribulational believers are going to be hated by the unbelieving Jews, those that are supporting false prophet, those that are supporting Antichrist, those that are following along in the program of Satan in the, in the Great Tribulation, they are not going to, uh, to, in fact, they're going to hate and attempt to kill the, the Jewish people that accept Jesus Christ and truly become born again. Because I called and no one answered. I spoke and no one listened. Where am I? Oh, verse 5. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. Even while they're murdering you, they will use religion to, to validate what they're doing. Right? And, you know, when they were twisting the, the man born blind, or they're twisting his arm, and they said, come on, give, give God the glory. Tell us about that heretic that, that uh, cured your blindness. Tell us he's a sinner. Give God the glory. If you ever read that in John chapter 9. And the man born blind was just so smart and said, well, I don't know about all those things. I just know that I was blind and now I can see. But they were pressuring him to give God the glory. And uh, using language of religion, very similar to what we see here. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. God gets the last word on the matter as God comes and conquers. Jesus Christ puts an end to the uh, rebellion against him in the coming tribulation. All right? Hatred should be expected. Here's some more passages. You ought to know these if you don't already. Um, Matthew 10:22. You know, a disciple is not above his master. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you too. Why do you think, do you think you're, you're exempt from this kind of thing? You know, how special are you? Why do you deserve that? Our Savior didn't. John 15, verses 18 and 19, when we're told to abide in Christ because, uh, because you know, he's the vine and we're the branches. Our Father is the vine dresser. We're, supposed, we're expected to bear fruit and we're also expected to be hated. That this world is not going to like us for what we're doing. It's going to hate us for what we're doing. Likewise, 1 John 3, verses 13 through 16, expands upon the, uh, the issues there from John 15. You should expect hatred. And I don't know about you, but I find if, uh, if uh, the opposition has grown rather minimal, I start to get worried, like, well, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> why, why are more people not displeased with, uh, with the ministry of Austin Bible Church? Why are there not more angry people? Is there some reason why I'm, I'm causing the adversary to be content with, with what's happening here? That, that to me, that's, that's kind of an issue that would raise a red flag and say, uh, uh, let's evaluate what we're doing there. Why am I not hated more in, uh, in different things? All right, now the meat of chapter 66 comes in verses 7 and following. And it comes uh, basically in verse 7 down through, uh, well, down through verse 14. We'll kind of handle that as a unit. This is a passage that speaks of the great joy. It speaks of the, the, the blessings of babies and how fun it is to, uh, to play with babies. And, uh, and peace like a river. Oh my. In verse 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace like a river. Alright, and so we have uh, the hymns that we sang this morning even that, uh, that address peace like a river and the things that we can look forward to, that Israel can look forward to in uh, their coming millennial kingdom. Alright? course we'll be there as well with christ as the bride but it's a different thing now verse seven before she travailed she brought forth before her pain came she gave birth to a boy that's a little out of order if you've ever had a baby you've probably noticed that that the labor comes first and then the delivery all right it's called labor and delivery that the the pain comes first and then the joy the joy that comes that makes you forget the pain that's the order but it's kind of interesting the way it's promised here and the way that it will seem when it's done. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. And as, as far as a prophecy goes, a lot of folks quote that verse and they think it applies to 1948. 
They think that it applies to the rebirthing of the modern nation-state of Israel. And I, I would take issue with that simply because none of the rest of this chapter happened in 1948. <laughs> okay? Uh, that 1948, the establishment of the modern state of Israel was not the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. It was not the regathering of the people in faith. It was the regathering of the people in unbelief. It is preparing the way for those unbelieving Jews to sign the treaty with Antichrist. But that's all right. Uh, We still have this to look forward to. And the suddenness of it, the absolute suddenness of it as Jesus Christ comes and makes it happen with his own sovereignty. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Wow, how many babies can you birth at once? All right, particularly when the, when the labor goes just like that. All right, it's over in a blink. You're like, wow, that was so fast. It's like it, it was over before it even started. Now, that's not literally true, of course, because we know it lasts seven years. We know there's a great tribulation in the first half and the second half, and we understand how he makes it happen. But when it's over and done with, and they look back, what does it seem to them? How is it that you and I can do the same thing today? We can look back over 20 years and think, wow, where did that time go? And we think it was just like nothing. All right. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. I want to make sure that we are appropriately adjusted, that we in the church age understand our connection to this passage and other passages. I don't want to get us consumed with bad approaches to things. And, and authors and speakers, they want, to, they want to throw things out there like pray for the peace of Jerusalem and things like that with a maladjusted context failing to recognize that before peace can come to Jerusalem, war is coming. And we need to have our eyes open to, to what these real issues are. See? All right. So be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. All right? Yeah, this is... A fun one to preach too. We could camp on this verse for an hour. You'll notice they don't write hymns from this verse. Right? They have the when peace like a river. You got all kinds of hymns with peace like a river from verse 12. But where, where's the great hymnology on the, the bountiful bosom and the uh, comforting breasts? Well, all right. It's not there. Don't, don't look for it. Don't Google that either. That's not... All right. But the imagery, the imagery is, is, is precious, all right? Because, I mean, what is there that's more precious than, than the infant, than the newborn? And how vulnerable and how weak and how absolutely thoroughly dependent upon the mother, upon the parents. And, 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 and that's what Israel is, absolutely dependent upon Yahweh as, as tender and fragile and vulnerable as, uh, as anything imaginable, and yet tenderly cared in his bosom. All right? So much doctrine in the, in the uh, verses here. And for thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed. You will be carried on the hip. You will be fondled on the knees or played with or stroked different uh, things you know you're you're going goo goo over a baby right in fact uh, we're waiting for the first appearance of of uh of uh, uh, a little girl we're gonna have a baby infant dedication not today but it's coming up i was promised so looking forward to that because it's fun it's fun to hold babies and then hand them back to their parents when the diaper needs changing and things like that As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Sometimes you nurse the baby, not because the the kid's hungry or anything. The kid just needs to be comforted. The kid's cold, he's scared, he's worried or whatever, and the best thing you can do, just comfort that baby. You know, he's not starving, not going to starve to death, but start nursing that baby and watch how they calm down, all right? 
because of the nearness of the mom and the proximity and the warmth and the touch and the skin and the smell and just everything of the mommy and the baby. And this is what God promises to Israel when he establishes the millennial kingdom. You will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad. Your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. All right? But, and then we switch back and we'll deal with the but in verse 15 and following here in a moment. Here's what we learn. We learn that the birthing of millennial Israel is so wondrous that the labor pains of tribulational Israel will seem like an instantaneous event. It will seem like an instantaneous event. It will seem like the delivery preceded the labor. It will, it will appear that before she travailed, she brought forth. With just such amazement. Here is this baby and the, the water hasn't even broken yet. The labor hasn't even started yet. And I've got a baby already. That's how fast it will appear. Again, the language of verse 7 addresses this. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. And so this is what we observe in this paragraph. The birthing of millennial Israel. And God uses the birthing language for a reason. He has a comprehensive birthing text right here with the language of bringing forth and the pains and everything that goes with that. Same thing we're studying on Wednesday mornings in Proverbs chapter 8. It is a conception and a birth that takes place when God the Father begets the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we'll see the, uh, the birthing language that's used in Proverbs chapter 8, including the weaving, uh, the being woven in, uh, in the way that God wo- uh, weaves a baby in the mother's womb. So the birthing of millennial Israel. And we know this. We understand the metaphor. The... Um, Interesting thing is, he's not the only prophet that does this. Micah does this. Micah's a contemporary prophet to, to Isaiah. The birth of Messiah is prophesied right alongside, as is, the birth of Israel for the millennial kingdom. And I think frequently we, we go to Micah 5 only so we can spot the, the Bethlehem verse, and then we ignore the rest of Micah chapter 5. <laughs> okay? Do you do that, or am I the only one that does that? All right, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There we go. Micah 5. See, you're going to all these minor prophets an awful lot this morning. Cut that out. Micah chapter 5. It's only difficult for those of us that still have paper Bibles. If you're using the app, you just push the Micah button and it takes you right there. Micah 5. And see, here's the thing. We talk about... Bethlehem, we love the Bethlehem verse. That's, that's, that's great. That's the one that pinpoints uh, Jesus and where he's going to be born and all of this. Notice, though, it comes in the context of discipline. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. Uh, with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. So insignificant was, was Ephrathah that it wasn't even considered one of the, the leading clans of the tribe. Remember, the tribe was broken down into clans and then families. And uh, for folks who were waiting for the lion of the tribe of Judah to come forth, Ephrathah would not have been a clan they would have, they would have betted on or, or you know, laid money on. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. All right, and the very little obscure little village that produced Jesse and David is the same little obscure village that's going to birth Jesus Christ, born in the manger in uh, the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. His going forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time he will give them up. What is this about? All right, well... What we learn in Daniel is that there's actually a, a gap. There's a delay. There's 69 sevens and then there's a 70th seven. And there is a significant historical delay until such time as the kingdom can be brought in. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock 
in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. In this beautiful passage in Micah that not only speaks of the birth of the Messiah, but then also speaks of the birth of the Messianic kingdom, the nation of Israel, as we were learning about here in Isaiah. It is a birthing process. Not only is Jesus birthed literally through the virgin, but the nation is birthed through the tribulation. We know, secondly, childbirth creates a joy that causes travail to be forgotten. John sixteen twenty one. we mentioned this last week and a few minutes ago this morning. It's a principle that Jesus speaks about that holds true in every stewardship. <laughs> Not limited to the life of Christ here in John 16. John sixteen twenty one. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. That is post Adam and Eve, right? Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. The joy that a child has been born into the world. All right? I don't think Bob was five minutes old on this earth when, uh, when Sharon said, let's have another. Yeah. Right there in the delivery room. A five-minute little infant right there. John sixteen twenty one applied just like that. But the whole nation is going to be like that. The whole nation is going to see the birth of Israel. And it will be like, well, wait a minute, did the labors even start? And that's a hard thing to fathom when you know the depths of what tribulation is going to be. I mean, the tribulation is a day of wrath unlike anything this planet has ever seen. And for something like that to just be forgotten, that's powerful. That is an amazing consideration. So in the case of Israel, it will seem like the labor was over before it even started. Again, we see this uh, issue here. Nursing babes. Nursing babes. The nursing babe illustrates everything right and beautiful for believers in Jesus Christ. We're told like newborn babes to long after the pure milk of the word. Nursing infants. God uses the nursing infant to teach the truth of what we are in Christ. Absolutely, utterly dependent. We get so full of ourselves and prideful and we start thinking that uh, you know we can do things in and of ourselves. No. Like a newborn babe, we're to be longing for the pure milk of the word. That's 1 Peter 2, 2. But think of uh, how he uses the illustration here in Isaiah 66, verses 11 through 13. The, uh, the delight and the comfort and the joy to be exceedingly glad, to nurse and to be satisfied, to nurse and to be satisfied, to be delighted with. You know, I mean, are there some things in life that satisfy you but aren't delighting, delightful? Or are there things that are delightful but not satisfying? This is both, right? Satisfying and delightful. And, uh, you know, if you've seen it, you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. I really need to have a woman preach this, but that's, that violates Scripture, so I'll, I'll do the best I can in, uh, in this. But there is, uh, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip, you will be, you know, some new, <laughs> you know, there's some first-time moms or new moms, and man, it's hard to get them to put that baby down. You know, well, the baby's got to sleep sometime. Put it down. No, I'm going to hold it just a little bit more. Carried on the hip, fondled on the knees. All right, caressed. Or the, the Holman, I think, has a translation there alike. But anyway, and this is this is what we're supposed to be with the Lord. He's going to delight in us. We're going to be satisfied in Him. Any believer ought to be. It's a beautiful illustration. Psalm eight two also uses the same language, the same imagery. Psalm chapter 8. Hmm. Think about this too. In fact, this gets quoted in the Gospels. O Lord, uh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendors above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. 
because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease from the mouth of babes, right? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes. Why was it the religious leaders that hated Jesus and wanted to execute him, but it was the children that were singing uh, hallelujah, that were singing uh, praise to the Lord and when he made his triumphal entry? Why was it the children that had the palm branches ready to go? Well, the uh, religious leaders had stones, <laughs> right? Why is it the children? And then the Pharisees were saying, make them shut up, make them stop. Jesus said, I can't make them stop. Make them stop. The stones are going to start crying out. The stones will cry out in the, in the Psalm 118 application there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us. Save now. And the children got it because the children were humble. The religious leaders didn't get it because they were arrogant and full of themselves. And I think, you know, Jesus, when he said the stones will cry out, he's talking about the stones in their hands and they were ready to kill him with. That's why I say the children brought palm branches and the religious leaders brought stones. In any event, out of the mouth of babes. So we have nursing babe illustrations in the scriptures and everything that's right and beautiful, phrased in, uh, in this way. Not just children, by the way. Um, don't fall for it. There's um, groups out there that try to uh, do different things, and they they uh, they're, 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 there's a lot of did you know there's probably do there's a lot of pro nursing political action groups that are out there and whatever, and they try to tell you oh it's natural it's normal and it's 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 child nurturing and blah 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 and they say there's nothing sexual about it and how dare you sexualize a woman's breast because they're just for the 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 feeding and nurturing of children and and they're not right, all right. Uh, yes, they are for the nurturing and, and nourishment and nutrition of children, but to say that they're not sexual in any way defies the scriptures and it defies reality and common sense. The, the Bible declares that they are satisfying and comforting. The bosom is always a place of comfort, always a place of comfort, even to adults, even to animals, in sexual and non-sexual ways. Adults and even animals find the bosom to be a place of comfort. We have other metaphors like Abraham's bosom. Why is it called Abraham's bosom? Why is that a, a title there in Luke chapter 16? Or the Father's bosom or Jesus' bosom. Why did John recline on Jesus' bosom, on Jesus' breast? Think of the intimacy involved there. So First uh, Kings 1, 2 and we can save a lot of time here as well. We don't need to search for every bosom verse in the Bible. Okay. First Kings 1, 2, David in his old age needed a, a virgin girl to come and lie in his bosom to keep him warm as he was approaching physical death. Proverbs 5 is the warning to a young man that if you're not married to that girl, that's not your bosom. All right, that uh, you should delight in your own wife and her bosom. That's yours. Proverbs 5, verses 19 and 20. That's a passage that uh, most men have no problem obeying in uh, things. Even animals, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 7, carrying the little ewe lamb in his bosom. When Nathan came to rebuke David and in the, in the story of the man that had the little ewe lamb, he carried that ewe lamb in his bosom. Even Isaiah 40, Jesus carries the lambs in his bosom. Isaiah 40 and verse 11. You know, when, when, our, when our Savior came to earth, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what does it say? It says, no man has seen God at any time. That's the Father. But it says that God the Son comes, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, he's coming with a, with a revelation, with truth from his Father, and on the most intimate of basis, that, that Jesus Christ is in the bosom of the Father. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You know, when you think about levels, degrees of intimacy, and we all have zones right we all have um people get closer than other people and there's some people you don't get like get close at all like enemies you you know but think about who gets the closest of all who lies in your bosom and uh there's a reason why the scripture uses the language the way that it does 
Okay, it was true in the ancient world. It's true today. Absolutely true today. John twenty one twenty, of course, is, uh, and John 13. These are the references there to the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to the apostle John, who uh, was the most intimate with our Savior. When Peter needed answers, he went to John. <laughs> and John, the one in the bosom of Jesus, said, what's he talking about? <laughs> Tell us what he's talking about. Because Peter was not in the bosom of Jesus, but John was. Principles there, all right? Playing with a baby and seeing them play is a joy for every parent. And that's why the millennial passages speak of playing children. Why it is that a playing child can play with serpents and vipers and put his hand in a viper's nest and lead a lion around like a... Like Kids today walk around with their pet dog or their pet cat or whatever. Millennial kids will be walking around with their lion and their tiger and their and it's gonna be perfectly fine. I find that interesting. Playing with a baby and seeing them play. Genesis twenty one nine, they were playing with Isaac. They were laughing. The word for play is the word for laughter. In fact it's a it's a play on words with, with the name of Isaac. Alright. And so Isaac is born and they're playing with him. And Ishmael is mocking him. Ishmael thinks it's stupid what that little baby is doing. And Sarah is having none of that. And so she immediately wants Hagar and, uh, evicted from the tent and evicted from the camp. And uh, Hagar and Ishmael have to depart. Because they're playing with their newborn. Proverbs chapter 8, again, we're going to see this. It's the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And God the Son is delighted in God the Father, and God the Father is delighted in God the Son. And the language that's used there is the language of playing. Playing, rejoicing in His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. And so we see at the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ, vocabulary that addresses a child that's playing before his father. And the father that delights in seeing the child play. Language that's used in uh, Isaiah 11.8, Jeremiah 31.20, and Zechariah 8.5. All millennial in their application, all with a future eschatology for Israel. Passages that speak of playing children. How about, I didn't even put it on there, think about it, but what about Jesus? When the disciples were trying to put a barrier around and keep the children away. And Jesus said, quit doing that. Suffer the children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he just delighted every time a, a child was around him that we have a record of anyway in the uh, gospel accounts. Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 8. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we have baby language here and promises connected to the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah 31. You think Jeremiah 31, you're just so eager to rush to the, the new covenant in verse 31. But prior to that, prior to that, 31.20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. There's no missing tribes of Israel. God knows exactly where, the, where Ephraim is, where the northern kingdom of Israel is. All of Israel will be, will be saved, all 12 tribes. But it is a delightful child, a dear son and a delightful child. And that word delightful is our word for laughing or playing. It is the, it is the, the silliness of an of a, of a infant or a toddler. You know, sometimes I laugh over the goofiest things. You know, what are you laughing at? That's so funny. You know, and then, you know, in fact, you can spend hours watching laughing baby YouTube videos. Some of you have done so. <laughs> All right. And it's infectious. These little kids, they start laughing and you can't help yourself. Zechariah 8.5. That one you can Google. Go ahead and Google that one. Just don't Google bountiful breasts. Zechariah 8.5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with a staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its street. Thus says the Lord of hosts. 
Is this too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people? In those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. Anyway, that's what they have to look forward to. Kids playing in the streets on a good, innocent, safety kind of way. Not hoodlums and gangbangers that we have today roaming the streets like a bunch of thugs. But boys and girls playing in the streets. And uh, the old folks on the porch watching them. Things to look forward to there. All right. Finally, 15 through 24, chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. You see, in order to visualize world peace, you've got to have military victory. You cannot have peace without military victory. This is what secures the peace. This is what provides for the peace. Uh, You're not going to negotiate it. You're not going to talk the bad guys into becoming good guys. You've got to kill the bad guys. And this is what Jesus Christ is going to do. The millennial kingdom will not have any unbeliever on the planet. Those who manage to survive Armageddon are going to be brought before the king in, in judgment, in the sheep and goat judgment, and every unbelieving Jew or unbelieving Gentile is going to be executed on the spot. Only believers will enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so to bring about this kind of peace, we have to have war. And in verses 15 and following, really the end of verse 14 there, he will be indignant towards his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Not going to be a happy day. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and go purify themselves and go to the gardens. In other words, back to the hypocrites again that think that they can get away with uh, being uh, carnal and, and still making a religious show of it. Following one in the center who eats swine's flesh, detestable things and mice will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. First of all, they're going to gather themselves together to try to stop Jesus from returning. But then Jesus is going to conquer and say, all right, you're all gathered together. Let's uh, take the remnant now, gather together those who are saved, and let's enter into this millennial kingdom. Let's enter into the joy of your master, as uh, the passage says. All right, here's what we got to look forward to. Goodness. Spent too much time on bosoms, and i got to get to chariots of fire here. All right. You know, angelic chariots have always been available. They have always been available. The fact that he didn't call for them at first advent is, is a miracle. You know, it is a testimony to his humility, a testimony to his, his patience and his grace. Because if that was me, I'd have been calling for him. I would have conquered this world and been done with it. Angelic chariots have always been available. You can read in 2 Kings chapter 6, and you have Elisha and his servant Gehazi, and they're surrounded. They think they're surrounded. The servant thinks they're surrounded. Elisha knows better. He knows that they've got them surrounded, right? Just when you're surrounded, you know you've got them right where the Lord wants them. (laughs) If you're an Old Testament prophet, and you can see the angels that are right there. So um, if you're not familiar with this story, we'll remind ourselves here. 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a great story. Just bookmark it and read it this afternoon. Second Kings chapter 6, and, and they're surrounded. And uh, the promise comes in verses 16 and 17. But um, in verse 15, when the attendant of the man of God had arisen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. Oh, that's not good. That's not the kind of thing you want to wake up to see, right? And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can expect, if all you have is earthly mindedness, and you're just kind of this human viewpoint kind of servant, and you're talking to Elisha, the the we seems kind of (laughs) limited. The we seems to be Elisha and me. But those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. They're already there. You just don't have the eyes to see it. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
He had a Secret Service bodyguard protection here beyond anything that uh, our country's ever thought about. And so, uh, oh, look at that. <laughs> we, uh, we have them outnumbered after all. Yeah, no big deal now with those, uh, those uh, folks that are out there. So there's the reality there. Psalm 68, 17 is another promise. Psalm 68, 17, related to chariots of fire and the armies of the Lord. You, you know, the reason why he's called the Lord of hosts, you ever thought about that? Lord Sivioth, his name, from age to age the same. Why is he the Lord of hosts? Because he has hosts. Because there are armies. He is the Lord God of the armies. They do exist. Psalm 68, 17 the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. And you think about the escort that Jesus Christ had at his, at his ascension and the escort that he will have at his return. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 and 8, the Lord will come with many thousands of His holy ones. Jude 14, the Lord will come with many thousands of His holy ones. That was a message that goes back to Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, recorded in Scripture in Jude 14. Jesus did not call for them at His first advent in Matthew 26, 53. He could have called 10,000 angels, but He died alone for you and me. All right, Ray Overholt wrote a song about that. Matthew twenty six fifty three. Behold, one of those who was with Jesus reached and drew out a sword. It's Peter. Matthew doesn't name him, but it's Peter. Grabbed a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Peter's going to try to overthrow the whole Roman Empire just to save Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus says, Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to go to the cross. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, I have access to soldiers here. I don't need a, a fisherman with a sword. All right? Put that thing away before you hurt somebody. Um, he could have called all of these angels, but He chose not to. That would have been defiant against the will of the Father. He's already had His victory when He said, Is it possible to let this cup pass by me? No then thy will be done. Thy will be done. And he realizes calling for these angels is not an option. Jewish evangelism in the tribulation is going to reap a bounteous Gentile harvest. As far as the rest of this goes, there's a great Gentile harvest. They're going to become, uh, the Jewish evangelists are going to get these guys saved, survivors from Tarshish and Put and Lud and Meshach and Tubal and Javan. Those aren't normally happy places. In fact, a lot of times they're involved with Antichrist or they're joining in the, the Gog-Magog attack. But the Jews are going to go in there and give the gospel and there's going to be a remnant saved. You can also read about it, 144,000 evangelists in Revelation chapter 7. Some from among the Gentile harvest are going to be selected as priests and Levites. They're going to be selected as priests and Levites. I'm glad I'm out of time. I don't want to spoil a uh, potluck dinner here. But this Gentile priesthood is going to have a main function in the Millennial Kingdom. And the main function is to walk out there to the Armageddon battlefields and to observe that the corpses are still corpses. They're still dead. The fire does not quenched. The, uh, the worm will not die. You ever seen a corpse after three days, after four days? It's not pleasant. We had a corpse in Kuwait City that we, was part of a criminal investigation. They made us leave it for four days under, under a bridge. And um, in the desert heat, it was not a pleasant thing. All right. Anyway, one of the main functions this Gentile priesthood is going to have is they're going to make regular surveys of the undying worms and the unquenchable fire. If they, I don't know how or what kind of window there's going to be into hell, but they're going to have a chance to see it. And this is not fullness of time, by the way. There it's remembered no more. But in the millennial kingdom, for a thousand years, the place of torments is viewable. It is viewable. And this priesthood described here is the priesthood responsible to, uh, to monitor that and to testify to that. 
from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come bow down before me, uh, says the Lord. They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched. They will be an abhorrence to mankind. What a way to end a book, huh? <laughs> they will be an abhorrence to mankind. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that by your grace and because of your Son, we are not the abhorrence to mankind on display. We are the testimony of grace on display. In this age and in the ages to come, the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Father, I thank you for the work of your Son, the Beloved One, the One who has accomplished what we could not do, that in Him, Father, we can be the objects of your millennial and eternal blessings. I thank you for Isaiah. I thank you for Jeremiah. Looking forward to the equipping that you provide for us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.